I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and look at Luke chapter 11, if you would. Luke chapter 11. And in just a minute, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And it is just a, just a profound honor uh, to be here. And I feel like I'm among family, feel like I'm coming home. And uh, for got to drive down here for about a year um, before Pastor Danny, Dr. Forshee came. And I just can't tell you how much I love your pastor too. I know that goes without saying, but sometimes you just need to say it. Uh, he is just a rare, rare find. I know you know that. Uh, but please be encouraged that someone who is able to have the gift of an evangelist and yet be committed to teaching text of Scripture, uh, it's a very, very short list. Uh, of people, and he's on it. And so, just an honor to be here and to see what God's doing through his leadership. And I was sharing with the deacons last night when we met that since, uh, since I've uh, since not uh, been here, but since about six years ago, God has done some really interesting things in our life. One of which was I went on a, a race, one of these Tough Mudder races, and uh, I am not the profound elite athlete that your pastor is. Uh, so, um, as a result of going through that race, I got a little bug, a little virus. That virus turned into uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, was hospitalized for a little bit. Can't really say you're in a tough mutter if it, if it kills you, then you're not, not really all that tough, uh, come to think about it. But uh, survived that, about a year of physical therapy and voice therapy, and God uh, brought us through that. But during the midst of that, my wife got, got sick, and she got a, a form of the Epstein-Barr virus that she couldn't shake. It was chronic, chronic and it's come to really become a, what we call a chronic immune disease. She still has it. She's fighting through it. But so many of you have been praying for us, and so that's somewhat of a personal way to start this morning. But I just want to say thank you. Thank you for that. So, so grateful for your prayer. She is doing better. And uh, so we're very, very grateful for that. There was a, um, a professor in uh, Oxford in England about the middle of the last century. And he was single, was never married, was brilliant. And about the middle of his life, although he's an atheist, he came to faith in Christ. And um, in coming to faith in Christ, he didn't just happen upon faith. He genuinely believed to the fact that he became an evangelist, an apologist really for, for the Christian faith. Um, his friends called him Jack. And the reason why they called him Jack is because his mother named him Clive. And if, you know, your name Clive, you'd be called something else too. Uh, his real name was Clive Staples, Clive Staples Lewis. You know him as C.S. Lewis, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, he had a pen pal from America who was writing him named Joy Davidman. And after a while, Joy Davidman, who herself had been married and had a couple of children, came to England to see him. They got to be fast friends, and she wanted to stay. And he said, well, that's easy. I'll just marry you. And so it's not really, this is perfectly illegal, by the way, but he went down to the courthouse. They officially married. She went back to her home. He went back to his home. They just got married just to, just to kind of keep her there in the States. But after this, although they were married, they saw each other occasionally, they got to be really, really good friends. And through all of this process, she developed a very aggressive form of cancer in her, in her liver. And uh, he began to care for her and care for her. And an odd thing happened. As he began to care for her, he really began to fall in love with her. And so she went into remission, then she got worse, and then she died. And here he was, someone who had really followed God faithfully as long as he became a believer, had really finally found love after never having love, and then she died. And he went into a spiritual tailspin, if you will. 
he wrote about it in a book called A Grief Observed, and he just kind of blatantly shared all of his thoughts. And listen to what C.S. Lewis said. Let me read you what he said in this book, A Grief Observed. He said, what chokes every prayer and every hope in God is the memory of all the prayers my wife and I offered and all the false hopes we had, not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking. Hopes encouraged, even forced upon us by false diagnosis, by x-ray photographs, by strange remissions, by one temporary recover that might rank, even ranked as a miracle, step by step we were led up the garden path time after time when God seemed most gracious, He was actually just preparing us for the next torture. It's a pretty honest word, isn't it? Here's something else He said in Grief Observed. This really sums it up. Based upon what I've been through, He's saying, what reason have we? except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is, by any standard we can conceive, good? Now, that's just a wonderful, wonderful question. If you're praying for something to happen, and it's not, God, I need a new Maserati today, it's, I want my mom to be better, or I want our family to be healed, but God doesn't answer that prayer, then how can you trust Him? That's a fair question, isn't it? Don't you think it's a fair question? So in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray, and He teaches them two things. He teaches them what to pray, and then He teaches them why to pray. And look at the what to pray first, Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. Luke 11 verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught His disciples. And he said to them, well, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. That is a a template for prayer. It's it's how we should pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. Jesus is saying, when you pray, here are the things you should pray for. But perhaps Jesus might have thought that the disciples were thinking, if God does not answer our prayer, how can we consider Him good? And so he moves from what to pray to why we should pray. And verses 7, or excuse me, verse 5 down through verse 13 explain why we should pray, specifically answering this question, if God is a good God, why doesn't He answer our prayers? Anybody here ever asked that? If God is good in heaven, why doesn't He answer our prayers, or why should we even pray to begin with? Jesus answers this question not through a lecture. Jesus answers this question through a parable. The Greek word is parabole. It means to, to cast alongside. So you have this kind of difficult, abstract concept, but Jesus throws alongside of it a specific concrete example. And if you can get the concrete example, then you can get the abstract kind of theological reality. And so here is Jesus' story he tells. Look at it there. It's in verse 5. Here's the first scene of the story. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight? And say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. You'll go to him at midnight. Now, what is going on? This is the setting for the stories Jesus tells. What is is going on here? Well, what's going on is Jesus saying, what if you have a problem? And let me give you a problem for an example. Here's the problem that the guy had. Late at night, he gets a, a knock at his door. 
and someone says, hey, would you take me in for the night? This is a relative or this is a friend. And he throws his arms around him. He says, it's good to see you. We'd love to have you in. But just as he's welcoming in, he realizes he has absolutely no food. He's going to feed him, but he can't feed them. Now, just to set the context for this, imagine that you're going to go from Austin down to Houston. Imagine, though, that you don't have a vehicle. You're going to walk from Austin uh, down to Houston. And imagine that it's August here, and so it's roughly 174 degrees outside. And if you're going to walk and it's blistering wind, and imagine there aren't the lush trees of the hill country, imagine it's all barren desert, what time of day are you going to travel? You're going to travel at night. And now you're going to get a sense of first century Palestine. It was nighttime travel. It was travel as far as you could. By the way, no hotels to speak of. They existed, but sometimes there were little more than brothels. Certainly any place, no place you'd want to frequent. And so the practice was to plan ahead to say, I'm going to travel this many days and stop in this town. And if you went into the town and you didn't know anybody, you literally knocked on the door of a stranger and said, could you please take me in for the night? And so hospitality was critically important because if you didn't take them in, they could, they could die out in the elements. In fact, if you didn't welcome somebody in, it was a shame on you in the community. Everybody would know it. You were supposed to take strangers in. So here this guy is ready to take someone in. He wants to be a really good friend to his friend that's come and traveled and knocked on the door. But the problem is he has nothing to feed them, nothing to feed them. But that's okay, because he has, according to verse 5, he has a midnight friend who can help him with this problem, a midnight friend. Now, I have lots of friends, but I have only a few midnight friends. Now, what's a midnight friend? A midnight friend is someone you can go to anytime and uh, any place, and you can explain your problem to them. And when you explain to this problem, no matter what happened, they're going to assume that you're right and the other person is wrong. They're going to immediately come to your defense and they're going to immediately kick into action, how can I solve your problem? That's a, that's a midnight friend. I've got a friend in Dallas who used to be with uh, Dallas SWAT and looks like a small refrigerator. Actually, that's not accurate. It looks like a regular size refrigerator. It's just a large, large individual. And he said to my wife, you know, I know that Stephen travels sometimes, so anytime you know, you feel unsafe, you have a need, just call on me. And I'm absolutely confident now my wife feels far more safe when I'm, when I'm gone. You know, Steve, I don't feel very safe. Would you please leave, you know, so someone else can take care of me. It's a midnight friend. I had another, when I was a pastor, I had another midnight friend who worked for the, uh, the assistant district attorney's office. And I got a ticket one time, and I was confessing my sins to him. Man, I got a speeding ticket. And why'd you get a speeding ticket? Well, I was speeding. I was not completely guilty about this. And he said, Steve, you could have never, you should have never gotten that ticket. I said, I know. I'm confessing my sins. He says, no, you missed the point. Don't pay that ticket. Just come and see me. And here's what's interesting. He was paid by the state to prosecute, but instead of prosecuting me, he wanted to come on my defense. Make that thing go away. Why? Because he's a, he's a midnight friend. Hey, it's good to have a midnight friend, isn't it? you have any midnight friends? I don't have a lot, but I've got two or three I can count on that would easily put themselves in peril if it took that to help me out in that situation. And you know what's great about having a midnight friend? A couple, three things. First of all, when you have a midnight friend, it emboldens you, doesn't it? Now, why does that make you bolder? Because when I have a midnight friend, I have whatever they have. I don't physically have it, but I might as well have it because as soon as I ask, I'm going to get it. A midnight friend just emboldens you if you have that type of a friend. 
And the second thing it does, when you have a midnight friend, this sounds strange, but it's just true, it, it honors them. Someone comes to me and says, hey, Steve, I couldn't ask everyone this, but I just want to ask you this. I need some help. Well, I'm honored that they would ask me. I would love to help them in that situation. I am honored by the magnitude of their request. And so he had a, he had a midnight friend. So he had a problem, but it's okay. Wasn't really a big problem because his midnight friend could take care of his problem. So here's what happens. Let's look at the next scene of the story. Verse 7. And he, the midnight friend, will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. What? Notice there's a question mark at the end. This is actually Jesus asking a rhetorical question. People were probably laughing as he asked this. It was kind of a comical type thing. He's in his moment of need. He's in his crisis, but it's no crisis because he's got a midnight friend. He goes to his go-to. He goes to his, his best friend, his midnight friend, and in that moment he gets unfriended. And the guy says to him, get off my lawn. Go away. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What, what kind of a strange story is this? Well, here's what happens. Look at what happens next. I tell you, verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. So it's a weird thing happened. His midnight friend turned out to be an absolute royal jerk. Was, was not there for him in his moment of need. But it was, it was no matter. Because he still got exactly what he wanted. Now, here's what Jesus wants us to teach. He's leading us to learn these two lessons about prayer. And this is the thrust of this whole parable. Here are the two things. When we pray, we're to pray with audacity. That's the first thing. The word there is impudence. Sometimes it's translated persistence, but that's not really the sense of it. The sense of it is this kind of obnoxiousness. I mean, this friend is inside the house, and he gives these crazy excuses. He says, well, the door is locked. You just have a sense of this guy laying in bed, reaching over, the, I just can't, I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't give up. I mean, these are one-room houses, right? I mean, he literally could have taken two steps to the door, two steps for his bread, uh, but he didn't do that. And he says, my children are in bed with me. That was true. They laid out pallets on the floor and all piled on top of each other for warmth. I just, I can't be bothered. But it didn't bother him that he couldn't be bothered. He was so bold, he was not leaving the stoop until he got what he wanted. Audacity. Boldness. You can take a look at all those prayers throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and the people whom God responded to are people who were bold in their prayers, audacious in their prayers, tenacious in their prayers. We talked about this a little bit last night with the deacons, but I find myself praying something like this, God, I've got this friend who's sick. And Lord, we know you have all power, so please heal them. 
maybe if you want to, but you're probably not going to, so just, you know, never mind, just forget about it. I don't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. Kind of this trailing off, mumbling sense of prayer. That's not prayer. Is God impotent? Can God heal? If He can do it, and the Scripture says He wants to do it, why would we stare up to heaven and get in His face until He does it? So Jesus is teaching. If you want a prayer to be responded to, don't mumble off some trivial little devotional thoughts that we've strung together and call that a prayer. That's not praying. Praying is wearing God out until He responds. Pray with audacity. Here's the second thing He's teaching us. Not only pray with audacity, but pray with persistence. But look at what it says in verse 9. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. You've heard this before, but the tense of these verbs is perpetual action. In other words, knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. Why? Well, for everyone who asks and keeps asking, they receive. And the one who seeks and keeps seeking, fine. And the one who knocks and keeps knocking, it will be open. And if that's true, that prayer is persistent, prayer by definition is persistence, then the opposite is true. The implication of that statement is, if you just pray one or two times and say, God, I show you take care of this, don't have any confidence that prayer is going to be heard. Persistence is to prayer what wet is to water. I'm not saying pray and be persistent. I'm saying prayer by definition is persistence. There's a famous pastor and somewhat mystic by the name of O. Hallisby, and he says, prayer is to a Christian what breathing is to a human. Um, I've been breathing ever since I've been up here. I've not been conscious of it. I've not been saying in one, out another. It's just this natural thing that's happening, and that's what prayer is for a believer. It's this constant relationship with God where we're constantly and constantly and constantly bringing things before Him. So that's what Jesus is teaching. One, pray with audacity, boldness, and secondly, pray with persistence. Now, let me stop here, though, and take a, take a timeout. Uh, remember, timeouts aren't counted against the clock. Preaching is just like football, so this is extra time that I have here. Um, now, this, this little parable brings to mind a question. In the parable, we're supposed to relate to this parable, right? It's casting alongside. We're supposed to put ourselves in the parable. So, in this parable, We would be this friend with a need, the friend who has some need and we're coming to this midnight friend. And that, the problem is though with this, is that would make God this midnight friend. God would be the the jerk here. So I just got to ask this question, do you think that's what God is like? Do you think if you come to God at your deepest moment of crisis, He unfriends you? Jesus just said, oh, by the way, the first thing I want you to ask for is daily bread. Your kingdom come, and then God, give me your daily bread. But oh, by the way, when you come for God and ask Him for bread, it really, really bugs Him. And He might give it to you, but I tell you, you're going to have to twist, you're going to have to put Him in a half Nelson and put Him to the mat and force Him. He's got to be so sick of you that He's just going to relent and give it up to you. Is that what God is like? Jesus, perhaps anticipating that they would be thinking that, answers that in this next section. Look at this. This is about the character of God. Look at verse 11. What father among you? 
If his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Holy, Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now this is an odd, odd verse when he talks about giving a scorpion or instead of a fish or giving him a scorpion instead of an egg or a serpent instead of a fish. What, what does that mean? Well, a child in that culture being uh, asking for a fish or asking for an egg, it was just a common food. Dad, can I have a snack? Can I have some goldfish? Can I have some, some gummies? This is the request that I get in my house all the time. Dad, could I have a, a granola bar? As my three-year-old says, a nola bar. Dad, I want a nola bar. Could I have a snack? That's just the basic common things. Scorpions and snakes were common things that they feared. I mean, they feared that when their children went out and play, they would run up against scorpions and snakes. So a, a common thing based upon something common that they feared. So it'd be like he's saying, my son asked, Dad, can I have a, a nola bar? I say, no, son, you can't have a nola bar, but there's some poison underneath the sink. Why don't you have a... Why don't you have a drink of that? Dad, can I go back out to play? No, you can't do that. I, I can't give you the opportunity to pray. But, but there's a busy intersection, two blocks of play. Go away. Go, go play right in the middle of that street. Now, would I do that? Now, I, I'm not a perfect dad. I, I wouldn't even consider myself the greatest father in the world. But even I know not to do that. And this is Jesus' point. Look at the end verse. Look at verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? In other words, Jesus moving from the lesser to greater. If you're an evil person and an incompetent father, but even you know how to give good gifts, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you exactly what you need? Now you see what's going on in the parable. It's not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. Jesus is not like the midnight friend. God is the opposite of the midnight friend. The midnight friend said, you're bothering me, and God says, you can absolutely never bother me. The midnight friend said, hey, look, I'm too busy for you, but God says, I'm holding all the universe in my hands, I'm keeping the earth rotating on its axis, and I have all the time in the world for you. The midnight friend said, you know, my, my children are far more important to me, and God says, you are my child. The midnight friend said, go away, and God says, come close. You understand, he is a good, good father. He knows what we need before we need it. He anticipates our need. He's begging us to come for us and ask what we need that he knows even greater than we do. And if I could mix metaphors for just a second, when you go and knock on his door, you find out you are already in his house. He is a good, good father. God is the true midnight friend. Hey, you know what prayer is? Prayer is simply a response to the character of God. The reason why I don't pray is because I don't believe that God is as great as He is. So this is why your pastor preaches through books of Scripture and exposed to Scripture. We get to know Jesus, and knowing Jesus, we know the Father. And if we truly know the Father, then of course we would pray. Prayer is a response to the character of God. So really, everything we say could be modified by the goodness of God. This is what Jesus is really teaching. Think of it this way. God is good, so pray with boldness. God is good, so pray with persistence. Prayer is a response to the character of God. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Now this, this parable raises I think some questions in my mind. And uh, the first question is this. Um, still, 
why doesn't God answer prayer like we want? Now, maybe you've been afraid to ask that, but it's okay to ask that. People all through Scripture have asked that question. God, I'm pleading for you for something. It's morally right. Why don't you provide this for me and my family, this healing or this financial blessing? God, why don't you provide that? And here's the answer to the question. Are you ready for it? Maybe you've always wondered. Here's the answer. We don't know. We don't know. I could do some verbal gymnastics up here to maybe get you to think about something special, but all that a preacher does that, listen, it's just a little bit of, of a rhetorical sleight of hand. We, we don't know. This is really the point of the book of Job. Job has these horrible things that happen to him, and he's crying out to God and trying to figure all this out, and finally, at the end of the book of Job, God just takes him aside behind the barn and wears him out, and essentially says this, Job, you don't know, and Job, I I can't tell you, you don't have the capacity to understand. You say, well, won't I understand it one day? Well, maybe, but maybe not. That's not promised in Scripture, that somehow before I die, I'll understand it, and it'll all kind of be woven neatly together. I, I don't know that. We just, we don't know. We lack the capacity as humans to understand why God operates as God. But let me just paint this scenario for you for just a second. Think about this. What if that wasn't true? What if every time you bowed your head and every time you prayed, exactly what you prayed for was immediately answered? Now, I've just lost some of you for the rest of the service. You're always thinking about what lake you're going to put your boat on, and um, where you're going to park your Corvette and these type of things. Imagine that. Every time you bow your head, just seconds go by, and God immediately responds to that. What would you do with that? Well, I'd first, of course, take care of all the physical issues in my family and behind. Um, then I'm not being spiritual about it. I'd go straight for the cash, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you? I mean, Southwestern Seminary wouldn't have any financial needs. We'd take care of that right away. Great Hill Baptist Church wouldn't have any financial needs. We'd take care of that. I'd just pray, and God would just take care of it, see, right away. I'd take care of my friends. I'd take care of my family. Uh, I would, you know, have the Danny Forshee Scholarship in Evangelism, which would be a $5 million donation to Southwestern Seminary. Perhaps put a statue of him uh, there <laughs> crossing the finish line at the marathon or, or something like that. Um, I'd take care of my friends, I'd take care of my family, I would meet some pressing needs, I'd travel the world meeting this need. I would do everything I thought was right in every situation I could think of until all of my will was done. And that's the opposite of what Jesus told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Father, your kingdom come, what's the next phrase? Your will be done. Your will be done. And I would tell you, I would hate to live in a world where I was in control or where you were in control. I don't know what, why God answers some prayers and why He doesn't answer others. God has decided not to reveal that, and God has decided to create us without the capacity to understand that. But I do know this, that God's will ultimately will be accomplished, even if I don't understand it. Here's the second question that this parable brings to mind. The second question is, look at the last part of the verse, verse 13. Why does he promise the Holy Spirit? 
I mean, this parable is going great. It's putting, giving us confidence in God that if we pray with boldness and persistence, He's going to respond. So this is what God is like, verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now that just seems like the first time I read it, completely out of left field. This is not a discussion about the Holy Spirit. It's not in the context around it really anywhere. So why does he throw that in there about the Holy Spirit? I mean, he's saying God is such a good God that when we ask, he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. I mean, that Holy Spirit is incredible, but, you know, we could go for something, I don't know, something more practical, you know, like money or healing. God's not tapped, you know, for cash. He could redirect all of that to me that that he wanted to. So why, instead of something practical, did he say, I'll give the Holy Spirit? Maybe the reason is because that the Holy Spirit is, we could say, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus came and He walked among us and He said, I'm sending you one that's greater than I. One of the things that make the Holy Spirit greater than Jesus is because the Holy Spirit, unlike Jesus who limited Himself to be one man at one point, limited to a a time-space continuum, the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at all times. So in every continent, as we're sitting here worshiping this morning, the Holy Spirit is working around the world doing incredible things, so it's the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, and Jesus always points to the Father, so to say you have the Holy Spirit is to say you have the presence of God. So God says, I know everything you need, and I'm so good, I'm going to give you my presence. And that's the greatest thing God can give, you see. God can't give anything better than God, right? So here's the question. If you go to God and say, God, would you fix my marriage? And God, would you help my family? And would you heal my family member? And you go to God with your crisis and pray, but all you get from that is God, is that enough? Is that enough? Sometimes God does not answer prayer requests like we want, but He always promises His his presence. No one who ever wanted the power of the Holy Spirit in their life was ever denied it. So is that that enough? Here's the, the third question that comes to my mind as I read this parable. What then is, what then is prayer? Is prayer, it seems to to suggest this kind of relentless, tenacious, audacious reach for, God, whatever you've put on my heart, I'm going to storm heaven for? Or on the other hand, is prayer more passive? Is prayer just resignation to the will of God? Is prayer just saying, well, we don't know what God's going to do, so God, I'm just going to kind of pray a little bit of it, but leave it alone because I don't want to be presumptuous that I know more than you. So which is it? Is it passive or is it aggressive? Is it kind of laid back or is it really taking hold of heaven? Which is it? And I think that that question is somewhat answered, that, that tension is answered in the most audacious prayer that was ever prayed. There's one prayer in Scripture that far and away is the most audacious prayer ever prayed, and it's found also in Luke in chapter 22. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke, Luke 22. Luke 22, this is the story of Jesus before He goes to the cross, it was on the Mount of Olives, and He was praying. 
Luke 22 and verse 39. Luke 22, 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Jesus was in perpetual prayer. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Now, by the way, how did they know that? How could Luke record this? Well, either he had to have told them the conversation or they could overhear it. But either way, Jesus let them into his private conversation between himself and the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The cup was a metaphor for death, drinking this torturous death. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my what? Not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. (laughs) Now, why was this prayer so audacious? Well, because the cross did not catch Jesus by surprise. It wasn't that Jesus somehow, when he was 31 or 32, God pulled him aside and said, look, okay, I know you came down to earth, but here's where this is really going. This was always the plan. Jesus created the world along with His Father, co-creators of the world, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew from the very moment of creation that Adam would blow it and walk away, and He knew that His job, although the Father created the world, His job was to recreate people after His image. So kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden was a death sentence on Jesus, if you will. Because he knew it would take his death and resurrection to restore all of this. So that was creation. Then you have the Old Testament. And Abraham, God collecting a people for himself after the flood. And then all that happened with Israel. And then in bondage and out of bondage and trying to rebuild. Then the intertestamental period. And then Jesus comes. So all of human history, Jesus knows all along, all of human history is leading up to this point, And they get right to the point where this plan that's always been in place is going to be executed. And Jesus says, I want out. I know what the plan is, Father, and you know what the plan is, but please, 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 I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. The most audacious prayer ever prayed. Jesus asked that the whole plan for the history of the world be changed. Then he says, Father, not your will, but my will be done. So, only two things could have happened to Jesus in that moment. Here are the two things. One, either God could have answered his prayer and removed him from that situation, or two, God could have given him grace to go through that situation. And that's why the following verse is so important. God really answers his prayer through the promise of the angel. When an angel appeared, verse 43, it wasn't to escort him back to heaven. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. That was God's answer. Son, I'm not, I'm not delivering you from the cross. I'm going to allow you to go through it because that is my will. Now look, whatever crisis you're facing, God can only do one of two things. He can deliver you from that situation or he can give grace to endure that situation, but he will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. So maybe here's a way to think about prayer. 
when we don't know what the right thing is, when we don't know what God's going to do, when it's mystery to us, we can ask that all of God's grace be directed toward us and goodness toward us until God's will is made clear to us. God, would you give me your grace directed toward me until your will is made clear to me? By the way, aren't you glad that God did not answer his own son's prayer? God did not deliver Jesus from the cross. He delivered us through the cross. By the way, someone interesting, Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is in heaven right now. And you know what he's doing? He's praying for us. He's he's praying for us. Listen carefully. God didn't answer Jesus' prayer so that he could answer yours. I have access to the Father because of a rejected prayer request. And so, everything I want in life, my access to God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, family, whatever else, all of that is available to us because God did not answer Jesus' prayer the way He wanted to. So, you can, uh, you can trust a God like that, right? He's a good Father. He says, I have all the resources that you need. I want you to ask boldly. I want you to ask tenaciously. And I want you to ask persistently because I am good. Good. Father God, we are grateful for your love for us. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that, Father, this time here we have now would not be the end of the service where they gather our things and just slip out. But, Father, we would look to heaven and say, God, what do you want me to beg from you? What do we want to plead for? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The Dr. Forshee is coming now to extend the, the invitation. But I, I want to say just one thing. This is not the, the end of the service. God is asking you to respond to him. So well, I, don't, I don't want to respond. I'm just going to graciously nod and, and walk out. Oh, that is a response. That's a response. You cannot not respond to God right now. And every time he speaks, he expects a response. So how will you respond to him?